Well, good morning again. It's nine minutes after five o'clock here on this Saturday morning, and uh, no heavy snow on the ground this morning like there was yesterday morning as uh, we kind of came to a screeching halt on spring-like weather, at least for a day or two. But uh, we'll be watching the weather. We'll be watching the coronavirus uh, epidemic pandemic and uh, we'll be talking i'm still working on the name of the drug that uh, the folks at gilead sciences are keeping an eye on as being helpful in working on the uh, current coronavirus situation as a matter of fact as i look at my reuters screen this morning about every other headline on the screen has a mention of the coronavirus but this morning on the Saturday morning show, I'm going to spend some time reminiscing about my relationship with Gordy Ropp, who passed away on Tuesday of this week. Gordy Ropp, a dairy farmer who milked Jersey cows down in the McLean County, Bloomington, Normal area who uh, served as a state representative, who served as the... Uh, uh, director of Agriculture for the State of Illinois. And probably the most memorable thing for me is the fact that Gordy was a, a 4-H club leader for his local 4-H club for 60 years that he served as a 4-H club leader. And he was a staunch supporter of 4-H and the 4-H activity. So I want to reminisce a little bit because I had the opportunity to spend time with Gordy in those various positions, and uh, quite a guy, really. We involved in agriculture in the state. We'll remember him for a long time for his accomplishments. So we're at 11 minutes after 5 o'clock, and... Uh, Jim Fazell is standing by, although I'm sure with the weather yesterday we wondered about the gardening season, but uh, he'll be checking in with us when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Jim Fazell, it was the shortest gardening season I can remember. What happened? <laughs> we should have listened to our good friend Greg Solier, our amazing meteorologist that you and I know well and have uh, listened to for many years. Uh, Greg said that we would have a dearth of snowfall throughout the winter, but that we would catch up with two significant snowfalls in April. And everybody said, oh, poo-poo, how can that happen? We've had two significant snowfalls in April, and our total right now for the year is almost up to normal. It's 35 inches, and uh, 36 is normal. So anyway, this will be gone. Of course, right now, if you look out, there are just a few vestiges of what we got over the past week. But we did get, uh, we got uh, uh, last week four inches of snow. That's two significant snowfalls, and he was right. Indeed anyway, he was. That happened. That's happened before. You and I have discussed uh, some of our past history. We've been around long enough that we've seen this before, so this is not really a surprise and not something that's uh, totally unusual. Actually, when I was a kid here in, in uh, Chicago land <clears throat> going to school, this coming week was the final four, four, uh, full week of April, and it was always spring vacation for the Chicago schools, and they called it cleanup week at that time. It was the last 
full week of April, in which time we were out of school and people were expected to go out and do some cleaning up for spring. And that we did. Uh, some of us did some cleanup. Most of us actually did a lot of baseball playing. Although I do, <clears throat> excuse me, I do remember spading over the Victory Garden uh, during that time. Uh, this was uh, during the actually during the Second World War. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on, and and uh, we were looking for things to do at that time, just as we are right now. Things that we could get out and do. Um, there were a lot of things that were rationed. People couldn't drive their cars and so forth. But anyway, it's still a good time to be outdoors at, at, during this week, uh, and it can still be cleanup week. In fact, uh, when you're doing your walking outdoors, and we hope that most of you are trying to get out and do some exercising, if you're doing your walking, uh, consider the fact that there's a lot of stuff out there that you could pick up instead of saying, well, I wish somebody would pick that up. Carry a plastic bag. We do that on occasion when we're out and walking. Pick up the stuff you see. Probably a good idea to wear plastic gloves. Uh, and bending down is good exercise. You know, Orion, when you get to our age here, it's a little more difficult to do that. But if we can, doesn't hurt a bit. Or if you can't, <clears throat> one of these graspers or a stick with a nail and it will work very well. You can pick up those things and put them in a plastic bag and dispose of it when you get back home. Also, at home, you need to spend up spend time cleaning up your grounds. You need to get stuff into the trash and recycle what you can. If you still have a lot of leaves, and there are certain trees that have just dropped their leaves now because they keep them all winter, uh, those need to be raked up and gotten into the recycler. Most communities now are picking up yard waste for recycling. But one thing I really need to talk about today, and before I ramble on too far, that's Arbor Day. Arbor Day is next Friday. It's always the fourth Friday in April here in Illinois, which happens to be April 24 this year. Uh, fourth Friday in Illinois, but it varies elsewhere. So wherever you are, if you're listening, check with your calendar to make sure what the date is in your in your community. Now, Arbor Day was started um, during there, right after the Dust Bowl in the 30s, by Sterling Morton. Now, Sterling Morton is well known to us around here because of uh, the salt company, but also Morton Arboretum. Uh, he's been t re remembered because of, uh, of his fondness for trees, and he did start this. He wanted to start windbreaks on the prairie so that as the winds blew when the ground was was bare in the wintertime, it wouldn't pick up the dust, so we wouldn't have another one of the dust bowls like we did have in the 30s. I don't know if you remember some of those times, Orion, but I remember the snow coming down pink. That was the dust out of Oklahoma coming here into the Chicagoland area, even in the wintertime. I like to plant trees, as a matter of fact. I really enjoy it. I planted hundreds of them. I can't even begin to count how many. Uh, when I was in college, I worked for a company, and all we did is plant trees in new subdivisions. So there were a lot of them that went in. That's uh, 60, 70 years ago, so um, I'm sure they're good, mature trees. And I try to plant some every year. I haven't gotten any done this year, but we will. Uh, a few years ago, we, we had the pleasure, really, of planting some huge trees, big trees. They were moved into a place where we needed them by Greg Ullman, incidentally, our good friend, the, the um, nurseryman from out in your part of the country. Uh, Greg brought these in with his big tree spading equipment. And we can't even tell the replacements are over 40 feet tall now. But you don't have to plant those. Small liners. When, I was, uh, when our kids were in school, this is about uh, 40 or 30 or 40 years ago anyway, uh, I did a lot of Arbor Day programs at which in which times we passed out uh, seedling trees. A lot of people just threw them away and said, ah, that's just a stick. We're not going to pay any attention with that. But fortunately, a lot of people planted these things. They are mature trees now, 40 or 50 years old. 
And I can go around town here where we live and within this school district, and I can point out trees that were planted by school kids back in that time that are gorgeous, big shade trees, shading houses, providing places for birds to nest, and so forth. Um, Just a, a little bit of past history, too. You know, Illinois was the prairie state. It's still known as that. Most of the trees were along waterways, but without without uh, uh, water to keep the the soil moist, the trees burned off when there were seedlings because the prairies were burned off to maintain the prairie. So we didn't have trees where our towns are built now was was prairie. Now. It, in our past history, our ancestors decided it was pretty t- pretty a good idea to plant trees for a bunch of reasons. And if it hadn't been for them, for them doing that, we wouldn't have trees now. We need to do the same thing for our kids. Our urban forest is even aged. These are all planted at the same time. Many of them planted right after Dutch elm disease decimated the elm planting throughout our area 60 or 70 years ago. And all are going to begin to die at the same time. Other ep- epidemics have killed off urban trees before that and after that. Most recently, of course, emerald ash borer. Seems to happen about every 50 years. So we have to continue to plant trees. They're important for our comfort. Uh, we can compare the treeless communities with ones that uh, are in, sta- in established towns that have big, mature trees. Um, the trees beautify our homes, but they're also utilitarian. They provide shade. They're natural air conditioners. Uh, if you drive into the woods on a hot day, you notice the difference. They protect us from winter winds. Uh, they break the wind. Uh, when you get into a community, uh, the wind is up in the air over the tops of the trees, so we aren't hit with the wind as badly as you would out in the open prairie. They reduce air pollution. They absorb noise. They break up the harshness of the city, and that's really important, uh, especially here in Chicagoland, concrete jungle. I remember before trees were planted in the city, it was really a desolate place. Now there are just a lot of comfortable, friendly places within the city, little nooks where trees have been planted. Anyway, there are all kinds of places you can can get information on uh, planting trees. You can get lists of trees from your community or from the University of Illinois. So you can celebrate Arbor Day, even though there aren't celebrations now because the communities are on lockdown. In fact, we all are. But you can plant a tree in your yard. Uh, if you have uh, a cemetery or a school or a church or a retirement home that could use a tree, call up the folks and ask if you could plant a tree there. Uh, we planted a dozen or so small trees in the cemetery just recently. Anyway, trees don't have to be big. You can plant them or plant, have them planted or plant them yourself, but the important thing is to get out and enjoy this marvelous spring and uh, do plant a tree wherever you have a chance to do it. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week about more gardening things. But that's a good way to close off this week's visit, Arbor Day, plant a tree or two or three or four. Our thanks to our specialist in ornamental horticulture, our tree planting uh, specialist, Jim Fazell here on the Saturday Morning Show. It's a little chilly yet this morning in the Midwest. Uh, we're in the low 30s at my thermometer outside the home in Huntley, Sun City. And uh, I think it's, yeah, let me look, 31 degrees on my outside thermometer. So uh, we are still not fully out of winter time yet. But, uh, as I said, every other headline on my Reuters screen this morning deals with the coronavirus pandemic, and that's certainly going to continue to have an impact on so many parts of our lives that maybe we don't think about. 
As a matter of fact, the uh, slowdown in demand for ethanol has affected the fizz we get in our beer and soft drinks because a byproduct of the ethanol producing plants is CO2, carbon dioxide. And uh, with so many of the ethanol plants shut down, we're just not getting the carbon dioxide from ethanol plants. And that's sparking some concern about shortages of beer, soda, and seltzer water, which are essentials for many quarantined Americans. One of the other impacts of the situation we're undergoing at the moment. But uh, the meat industry is uh, going through some additional situations because of the epidemic, and we're going to uh, check in right now to get an update on that from Max Armstrong. Orion, this week in my neighborhood, they were selling chicken out of the back of semi-trucks. Yeah, chicken processor had the trucks, the trailers uh, lined up. They would take them into a community. They would advertise it on their website, and they were selling 40-pound cases of uh, boneless chicken breasts, of chicken legs, uh, also of wings. Uh, they were selling those, too, and finding very good demand. Long lines of cars from people wanting to buy at $45 a case these cases of chickens. There have been some dramatic changes, of course, throughout the meat chain. And consultant Catherine Miller talked with me about that this week. She's based in Oklahoma and works with the food industry in meat acquisition. Every day is a new day. We literally wake up in a new universe. What happened yesterday won't happen today, and the news stories from today won't be relevant again tomorrow. Uh, change is inevitable at this point, and you know those of us who are able to adapt and kind of overcome with with what the market is throwing at us. I think that we're going to see some really interesting new ways of business come out of this. Um, but in the in, you know the the change, um, this period, our supply channels, uh, you know, we're really struggling to adapt to what what consumers are needing and what the market will allow us to do. It's been an interesting few weeks for sure. I hate to use the term because it's used so much thinking out of the box, but really that's what we're seeing now, isn't it? People coming up with ideas that we would have never thought of before. You know, I think what's interesting is that in the last four weeks, it's made startups of every company. Every boardroom in America is having to rethink how they go to market, and it really leveled the playing field so that those who are able to adapt and able to make quick changes, they're really seeing a new way to go to market, and those who are really stuck in the same patterns of, no, this is how we do things, and this is how it's always been, they're going to really continue to struggle. Food service, you work closely with those folks. That has been an industry just decimated. Isn't there going to be a segment of food service that just won't come back? You know, the longer this goes on, the worse those numbers look. At this point, we're pretty much anticipating that 50% of you know, independent restaurants probably won't be able to reopen their doors. Um, you know, any business that has an extended period of time when their revenue goes to zero and yet they still have bills to pay, that you know, that's going to take a hit. Um, we're going to see some titans of industry really fall on the food service side, and I think we'll be surprised at where, what corners that comes out of. I don't think anyone is safe. Of course, your national chains, um, your Dardens of the world, they'll be a little bit more insulated because they have a bigger balance sheet to work off of. And so in the first weeks, it's really hit your mom and pop, your neighborhood restaurants. But the longer this goes on, I think the deeper that cut's going to get. 
Some folks were a little bit uneasy about the supplies of cattle and hogs we had in the United States watching the expansion take place. It's turned out to be quite burdensome, hasn't it? You know, we've been in an unprecedented time of expansion, both on the hog and cattle side. On the hog side, we've added 100,000 more chain spaces, um, anticipating China to, to really come on board and start buying some hog supplies. And while exports have remained solid, um, on the pork side at least, uh, the, the what has happened to domestic food service has really negated that storyline. And, and so while... For us, it's awful to watch plants close and what that means for live animal values. You know, that's, and what that in turn is going to mean at the consumer level in the next few weeks. Um, for, for the industry, we're, every day we're in uncharted waters there. Um, I, I have no idea where live animal values go. For a lot of us, we've always joked that it can't go to zero. And unfortunately, we're kind of seeing that. Um, one person said that the market has a paddle big enough to get all of this, and I think that we're we're experiencing that right now. On the the cattle side, there's not a bottom yet, um, not in, in fed cattle or in cull cows. And I think that every day that this continues to go on, we're going to see those markets get softer and softer. You know, we live in a supply-based economy, and, and right now we have more fed cattle and more fed hogs than ever before in history. And uh, with 45% of our demand point gone in terms of the restaurant industry being closed, um, that's not something that we can quickly recover from. That's Catherine Miller, meat industry consultant who works mainly for the food service industry, Orion. 28 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And I was just uh, looking at some more of the details on the impact of the uh, slowdown in driving and the demand for gasoline and the fact that uh, the carbonation for our beer and our soft drinks, really the major supplier of CO2 the carbon dioxide for that is uh, the uh, ethanol industry because ethanol being blended into gasoline but with the driving down uh, demand for gasoline down by more than 30 percent in the united states and the lack of ethanol output is disrupting this highly specialized corner of the food industry because 34 of the 45 U.S. ethanol plants that sell CO2 have idled or cut production. That, according to the chief executive of the Renewable Fuels Association, Jeff Cooper, I wouldn't have realized that uh, the meat industry is uh, being affected uh, by the coronavirus, but I guess I shouldn't be because coronavirus is impacting so many different segments of our society these days that I'm not surprised that uh, the ethanol industry is affecting the meat industry and affecting the uh, seltzer and the carbonation that brings the fizz to beer and soft drinks. So that's part of the learning process of the pandemic. We're at the 5.30 mark here on the Saturday morning show on Chicago's very own 720 WGN Radio Chicago, where it's time for Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this week, again, looking at the many different ways that the pandemic is affecting agriculture. I have a job for you this weekend on Samuelson Says. 
Will you tell me when we'll finally get rid of the coronavirus and be able to schedule county fairs or state fairs or the state FFA convention or the many other rural events to promote agricultural crops in various parts of the country? We are faced with something that, in my memory, we have never been faced with before from the standpoint of being able to schedule crowd-gathering events. And I'm hearing from quite a few parents who have 4-H or FFA members in the family who are wondering if their state FFA convention will be held, or how about this question, will our county fair or our state fair be canceled because of the coronavirus epidemic this year? I don't expect you to provide an answer, because I certainly can't. I'm not a medical specialist, and I cannot answer those questions. But a lot of people are asking them because 4-H kids, FFA members who really celebrate their year's success at the county fair and ultimately at the state fair are wondering if they'll have that opportunity this year. And many of the rural community events to salute various parts of agriculture. For example, an event in northern Illinois labeled the Harvard Milk Day event, which normally is held the first weekend of June Dairy Month. It has been for 78 years. Well, already they've decided they're not going to hold it the first weekend of June. Instead, they'll move it to mid-October because of their concern about whether or not we'll be able to hold crowd-gathering events. And then how about the agribusiness community who really has to put together now what they plan to do with their exhibits at the county or state fair or farm shows like the Farm Progress Show? That's a costly question because they have to prepare their displays and the machinery or the technology they're going to share at those events. Yes, indeed. An interesting time of the year that I hope we'll never have to go through again. So I close by saying, be safe and be well. And those are my thoughts on Samuelson Says. And as always, we thank you for joining us here on the Saturday morning show when we spend an hour talking about the most basic industry in the world producing food for the growing population, and uh, it certainly is facing its challenges this year with the pandemic. But uh, already we received word that the Wisconsin FFA convention will be uh, postponed, and uh, hopefully it will be held before the year comes to an end. But that's the first state FFA convention that I've heard about that is being postponed. So we'll keep you posted on the other postponements as well that we're going to continue to see during this pandemic. We're at uh, 26 minutes before 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And one of the uh, crops we're talking about this year, hemp. And uh, the folks at Flora.com are deeply involved in that. You hear us talk about it here on the Saturday morning show. And uh, we'll continue with part two of the interview that we first started last weekend when we continue here on the Saturday morning show.
Earlier uh, this spring, we talked to Jeffrey Yaros, who is the CEO of a company. You've heard us talk about a great deal here, the uh, Flora.com company, dealing with an old crop that is a new crop, and that's hemp. Because I remember growing up on the farm in Wisconsin when hemp was used to make rope for the war effort, and uh, now it's suddenly being used for a lot of different reasons. But Jeffrey, in our last visit together, we talked about some of the questions I've been getting from farmers. So let me start with this one. Uh, Will the income from the cost of producing hemp cover my investment in what I need to produce it? Absolutely. Uh, You, even if the, even if the market were to go down, um, 50% 50% from where the pricing is right now, uh, you would still come out ahead of your other, well, you know, in the Midwest, we obviously think about corn and soybeans uh, right. quite often. Um, you're going to come out ahead on a per acreage basis rather easily. The challenging times we're in probably impacted the introduction of the crop this year because another question I'm getting from farmers, what agricultural college or university can I go to to get information on the crop? Do you have a lineup of those colleges that can answer those questions? Colleges are, um, that has been a, that has been a challenge. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, colleges have not, <clears throat> yet been able to do much with this uh, example of that is i can't even send seeds right now to iowa state university because iowa has not um has not uh, yet issued licenses uh for uh farming hemp or for seed production of hemp so it is a challenge in michigan michigan state is doing a great job they're directly vol- involved uh with the um with the program in michigan and i believe the university of illinois uh, is uh, is also uh, getting involved with this, but really everything is um, pretty new because the crop was illegal a little more than a year ago. So it's going to take a couple years for these uh, research universities to um, to really get uh, get going. You can reach out to most states do have a um, do have a hemp. Uh, association of some sort, uh, and you can reach out to them. That's a great resource. Uh, college, more and more colleges are getting involved. I know um, Purdue is doing a great job in Indiana. Um, it, it, if you have any questions on any of that and you'd like to get in touch with any universities, feel free to uh, reach out to us and we can direct it to the right people. And to give us your phone number and email for people who want to talk directly to you? Uh, sure. So you could d- email me directly. Uh, that'd be Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y at Flora.com. Um, you can also uh, get our uh, get our main line, which uh, will be directed uh, uh, to me or one of my associates, and that's at Flora, F-L-U-R-A, Dot com. That's Flura, F-L-U-R-A, dot com. You mentioned uh, state universities and colleges, but another question I get is, are the rules the same for every state in the country, or do we have to make sure we know what the rules in our state would be? 
You definitely need to make sure you know what the rules are in your state. That's something we're happy to help out with because we do pay attention to it. But rules are different. THC rules are different. Um, the amount of acreage, uh, the amount of acreage you're allowed to grow, is different from state to state. Uh, the amount of um, re- <clears throat> really when you need to get the crop tested is going to be different state by state. So. Those are things you do need to pay attention to. Most uh, agriculture departments have it pretty clearly defined on their websites. Um, We do track it pretty closely because uh, we sell seeds in many, many, many states. And so, um, you know, anyone can reach out to us and we're happy to answer that. But if you want to do it on your own, uh, most agriculture uh, uh, departments uh, in the various states list out the requirements. It is something you do need to pay attention to because it is a very fluid situation, um, especially in the states that are just now uh, introducing it this year in 2020. And Jeffrey, my final question is a question from a farmer who said, I generally do my planting decisions in the fall for my seed, fuel, and fertilizer for the coming spring. And uh, I, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm not growing hemp this year. Sure. So I could see that being an issue if you were uh, going to try to match your corn, soybean, or wheat. Uh, coverage out there uh, where you had to, you know, you're planting uh, hundreds or thousands of acres. Uh, if you're going to try this out, though, for just a couple acres this year, I don't think it's uh, too late and it won't be too labor intensive to still make a decision to give hemp a try this year. Yeah, what is the growing season? When do you plant? When do you harvest? Depending on the, uh, depending on the strain that you grow, it could go. You're typically in. Uh, you're typically going to be putting them in in uh, late May, early June, and uh, depending on if it's a uh, early strain or a full maturity strain, you're looking at anywhere between uh, 90 days to 150 days. So your harvest could uh, be anywhere between August and October. Obviously, in the more northern states, you really want to get stuff out by uh end of september well again you've been very helpful uh, jeffrey and uh i will direct any further questions i get from listeners to wgn radio to your website flora.com and address it to jeffrey he's the ceo of the company and uh, i hope we get the rest of this stuff straightened out so that we can get back to doing what we do and that's to grow crops but thank you jeffrey very much thank you orion thank you appreciate it jeffrey yaros who is the ceo of flora.com with us here on the saturday morning show well as i have mentioned several times in the past month or so i think uh, i'm going to be spending a lot of airtime this summer on cancellation announcements or change of dates announcement with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the 4-H and FFA uh, gatherings at county and state fairs and also the uh, 
several activities that have already been canceled or postponed. I mentioned the Harvard Milk Days at Harvard, Illinois, normally held the first weekend of June. But this year, because of the uh, situation, the Harvard Milk Days will be held October 16, 17, and 18. And then, of course, we've also talked about the cancellation for the second year in a row of the World Pork Expo at the Iowa State Fairgrounds in Des Moines. And uh, we're going to check in with uh, Steve uh, Alexander to talk more about that cancellation when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. We are back on the Saturday Morning Show on 720 WGN. Steve Alexander with you for just a few minutes to report on how the impact of COVID-19 on agriculture is growing by the day. This week, we've heard stories of more meat processing plants shutting down. And with markets drying up because restaurants and schools are closed, farmers are disking under or leaving to rot millions of dollars worth of lettuce and other veggies and fruit, too. Some potato growers are giving away spuds. Dairy farmers are continuing to dump milk. And in an even more unpleasant betrayal of a farmer's mission, hog producers who say they're already losing up to $50 per head are faced with euthanizing pigs because there is no market to take them to. During a conference call a few days ago, the National Pork Producers Council asked the USDA to throw a lifeline. Right now, losses up to maybe $50 per animal. Animals backing up, not worth anything. $5 billion blown out in value from the industry. This is just a grave situation on, on, uh, on hot farms. That is Nick Giordano, the head of global government affairs for the Pork Producers Council. He says it isn't as if the hog farmers were prospering before COVID-19 hit. U.S. hog farmers were at the tip of the trade retaliation spear. 2018 and 2019, trade retaliation in two key markets, Mexico and China, took $20 off the price every producer received for every, every hog. So unlike a lot of sectors of this of our economy, which kind of came in, you know, with record profits and a full head of steam to COVID, um, our producers were really hurting. And what does the National Pork Producers Council want for the industry? Well, two things. One, cash payments to producers to keep their heads above water and purchases by the federal government of products that are sitting in freezers right now that can be given to food banks. Here's Dallas Hockman of the NPPC. It's important to know that we have two separate inspection systems in the U.S. That goes to food service and that goes to retail. In essence, the product that's produced for food service is not allowed to be sold at retail. And so we're trying to provide an opportunity to get that product out of the freezers, out of that, and more importantly, to help lift those categories that need a lot of help, in this case specifically, hams, bacon, ground pork items. So we've been working with Feeding America and the food banks. They very much would like the product. Our ask with the Agricultural Marketing Service and USDA is for this purchase to go to food banks, to disaster relief programs, but very much oriented to those products that really need the lift right now, and especially that we're destined for food service. Also on the call was Neil Dirks, the CEO of the National Pork Producers Council. Another additional issue that producers have been dealing with is that because of COVID-19, we have seen some idling of packing plants. But the pork business is a time-constrained business. And when people make the decision to breed animals, it's really for a market 10 months in advance. 
Well, suddenly we then have run into a constraint with the availability of being able to get pigs processed. And we are actively encouraging our government to work on the federal, state, and local levels to facilitate keeping an even flow of processing occurring, which means working hand-in-glove with public health officials because companies want to work with their team members uh, to make sure they're healthy and, and make sure things are going. And there's been a lot of actions taken at taking temperatures going into plants and, and segregating workers and giving more space and things in this order. But the secondary constraint we face that makes this even more dire is the suspension of plant operations, which ultimately long-term, if it continues, will have an impact um, on availability. At this juncture, the, we have uh, the pipelines full and we have some pork and storage, so the consumer shouldn't worry in the near term. But it creates a terrible situation on the farm. And on a farm in southwest Wisconsin is A.V. Roth. He is the president of the National Pork Producers Council and worries about what may have to happen. With this whole backlog, if we do not keep these animals going through our processing plants, it's a big decision whether what I can do with these with those piglets coming forward. If we do not get government assistance immediately, euthanizing is going to soar dramatically. No farmer wants to be in that position. In fact, you won't find many farmers who want any kind of handout from the government. Here's Nick Giordano again. We typically aren't asking the government for, for things, but the reality here is our producers in 2018-2019 stood by with the realignment in U.S. trade policy. There's a lot of things, you know, beyond their, their control, and they need a lifeline from, from the federal government, and they need it fast, or we're going to lose a lot of producers. So let's talk about the money. Three weeks ago, Congress passed and the president signed a $2 trillion rescue package, out of which about $49 billion was sent to the USDA. Most of that is going to nutritional programs like SNAP and other programs to help rural residents deal with the effects of COVID-19. In Washington yesterday, it was announced that $19 billion has been set aside, $16 billion in direct payments to farmers and ranchers, and $3 billion in government purchases of dairy, produce, and meat products. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue admits that that is not enough to cover the farmers' losses, and he says there is another $14 billion scheduled to be doled out in July. One other thing the pork producers want is a legislative fix to a flaw in the SBA emergency loan program that for some reason has left about 10,000 family hog farms ineligible for those loans. The Saturday Morning Show on WGN with Orion will continue right after this. The uh, sad news that we got this week for those of us in Illinois agriculture, the news that a giant of Illinois agriculture has passed away, former state representative, state agriculture director, and longtime 4-H booster Gordon Ropp passed away Tuesday. He was 87 years old. And uh, the story that uh, came out to all of us who knew him included the line, Gordon Ropp never knew a stranger. Everyone, when they think of Gordon Ropp, thinks of an energetic individual with his ever-present smile and his warm personality and his laughter and his storytelling. Those were the words of State Representative Keith Summer, Republican from Morton, Illinois, who said, Anyone who ever came across Gordon Ropp will remember him for that 
and how he treated them and made them feel warm also. He was raised on his parents' dairy farm in Normal Township near Bloomington, and he milked cows by hand starting at age six, and then they got a milking machine, and uh, they discontinued the hand milking and moved on to a milking machine. But I think probably the uh, greatest achievement that uh, Gordy would uh, consider is the fact that he was a state, or he was a 4-H club leader for 60 years. Can you imagine putting up with the 4-H kids for 60 years as a 4-H club leader? I had the opportunity to know Gordy very well, and as a matter of fact, he is still very present in my life because the 50th anniversary of my years at uh, WGN Radio um, at a party held out at Big Rock, Illinois, Gordy was there, and he presented me with something that I have to this day and I use every day. He presented me with a cane, an unusual cane, and because there might be ladies or kids listening, I'll not describe it, but I, at the time I received it, I thought, well, that's a nice memento, but I uh, won't have to use it. But now I'm finding, yes, I am using it. So Gordy Rupp is with me every day as I use the gift that he gave to me at my 50th anniversary at WGN. So thanks to Gordy for that. And he will be remembered. A quick look at uh, prices where we ended the week at the Chicago Board of Trade. July wheat yesterday was up four and three quarters cents a bushel. July corn was up three and a half cents a bushel. But the July soybean contract at the board ended down four and a quarter cents. But the livestock screen is green. For yesterday, the June lean hog contract up 42 cents a hundredweight. The uh, June live cattle contract up 20 cents a hundredweight. And the April feeder cattle contract up a dollar 27 cents a hundredweight. All too quickly, our time is gone on this Saturday morning. Thanks to Bob Ferguson, who does the engineering work for me. And thanks to you. Have a great week. And again, thank you for listening to the Saturday Morning Show.